Well, I want to welcome everyone to the uh, No Name Podcast. My name is Ryan Warner. I'm joined as always by uh, Dustin Gavrilo and Dr. Ellie Shockley and Richard Rockefeller as well. Richard, you've become kind of a regular contributor to the podcast. I want to thank you again for joining us. Um, it's been a couple of weeks, guys. Um, a lot to talk about. A lot has happened over those two weeks and uh, continues to develop and we'll develop, I'm sure, into the next couple months. Um, so I, without further ado, I just want to get into it um, so we can make sure we have enough time to kind of delve into all the various things that have happened and that I'm sure you guys have been dealing with in your uh, personal and professional lives. Um, so I just want to open up some space in the beginning here to just have a short check-in. How has the last couple of weeks gone? I've talked to some of you offline or texted um, over the last two weeks, but it's been kind of a crazy two weeks and uh it's seemingly going to continue to be crazy for the next couple of weeks at least um how's it gone for everyone who, who would like to go first this is ellie i could just share that i'm really exhausted <laughs> <laughs> i yeah i uh i almost i might lack as many words today as I usually have, unless someone else gets the conversation going and then I realize I have a lot to say. Um, I'm just kind of worn out by all that I'm juggling and all that I'm supposed to attend to. And, um, and it's okay. I'm managing. Okay. It's just, um, it is kind of a trip to work for state government during legislative session, because there's no domain of my life in which legislative session, like couldn't show up, you know, and uh, I am doing some work now that is um, in support of legislative decisions that are coming down the pipeline. And I'm very happy to do that um, because I know I can offer high quality work that can. I, and I like the idea of people using information to form decisions. Um, but, you know, it's uh, I also want to be paying attention to what's going on as a citizen. And it could just be a lot to uh the, yeah the session is very um attention sucking so i'm tired word well that makes sense ellie and i i will i will validate that feeling <clears throat> and i think i texted you over this last week that um i was re i was reading so many bills i, I started to go nauseous uh on that one day where i was like i'm gonna read all these bills i haven't i've, I've been uh, I think on Monday, yeah, Monday, a bunch of bills started coming out <clears throat> and I felt like I was getting behind. It was losing track mm -hmm. of everything. So I just started uh, to delve into them and um, it became like uh, physically sickening at some point, just reading, reading all that uh, stuff and trying to keep track of it and put it, you know, have it contextualize it and intellectualize it so I could repeat it back to someone and, and take notes and, you know, put it into our tracker. And it just got to be too much. And then uh, that was the last day I really spent any, you know, lengthy amount of time work working through the bills that have been coming out because uh, other life stuff started to pop up um but yeah it's uh it's that time of year where it seems like lots of things are happening and you want to be responsible and and responsive to uh things that are happening and, and participate in things as they're happening and uh, it's just been tough this week for me as well i also started uh homeschooling my daughter uh, in january we were in distance learning for the fall semester and have moved to homeschooling for the spring hopefully and then everything's back to normal we we uh, keep our fingers crossed next school year um, for the next fall uh, so we've been doing homeschooling and that's been a, a trip as well um, actually much better than distance learning um, for both me and my daughter uh, able to give her one-on-one -on -one time and um, 
and help her engage in, a, in less with less screens and technology in in between us. And uh, it's actually been more efficient too. Uh, we can get more done in a shorter amount of time when it's just me and her going through stuff versus waiting for her and her classmates to go through things on the computer, which was boring me as a participant um, parent. And then I'm sure boring her as a, as a student who likes to jump around and do physical stuff. And so that's been going well. And uh, I guess the last bit of this is neither here nor there, <laughs> uh, but I, today was the first day was here in a ponytail because I've been, uh, going on a haircut strike since COVID. And so today it finally got long enough. So that was a big moment for myself personally. <laughs> I wanted to share that with our listeners. It's been a long time since it's been a ponytail. And with that, I want to kick it over to either Dustin or Richard to kind of share how your week has gone. Um, we're going to talk some about the national attempted coup stuff. And, uh, and also a lot about what the, the North Dakota legislative session has uh, been going on so far. But Dustin, Richard, how'd your week or last couple of weeks go? So, so Ryan, I feel like I should have warned you about reading bills. It's a lot like binge drinking. Uh, you got to do it in moderation. <laughs> Seriously, yeah, thanks. Where was that? Where was that point? Yeah, yeah, it, it was, uh, it, we neglected to discuss that. Yeah, I, I try to, you know, once you hit, you know, so uh, this is what my eighth session. Uh, once I hit about the fortieth bill in the day, I, that's when the the eyes start to uh, glaze over. And once you hit fifty, then it's right. like, oh no, I got to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and and they finally got the actual tracking system working for like five days. The tracking system on the legislative website where you where you actually sink in without doing a spreadsheet it just wasn't working. And so now it is working and, and um, I've got my, my system updated and um, it makes it a little bit easier. It, 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 it is kind of weird because it, it ties into a app on your phone and you can't manipulate anything on the app. You can, it is, it, it's in a better displayed and more readable format when you look on your phone, but you can't actually manipulate anything with it on your phone. So it's kind of odd, but um, yeah, the, uh, the <clears throat> legislators are keeping us busy. That's for sure. Yes, they are. Richard, how's the last couple of weeks gone for you? Oh, well, thanks for having me. Um, I, I, I enjoy being here um, when I get the opportunity. Um, I'm not sure if I'll be able to hang on for the full two hours today. I have a, a puppy date, um, a date with my puppy to take him to the play park. Um, I don't do that enough during the week, but I, I, I've been reflecting about our past podcast that we had done just before the holidays, I believe. Um, <clears throat> was it Marvin Nelson? Representative Marvin Nelson, is that his name? Yes. Yes. You know, so that that podcast was before the insurgency on the federal seat of our democracy. And, you know, if you recall in that podcast, he was kind of prophetic in that. And, you know, when he said that, it both kind of scared me and then both I kind of like minimized it in my mind. So 
you know, he, he had commented that there are people, there are people with weapons and guns that, you know, want to hurt other people. And, you know, uh, and I shouldn't laugh at that. I just, I laugh at it because it's just, it's just, it was like, you know, there had to be, you know, some other signs there. And anyways, I don't want to get bogged into them. And I know that's been, been I'm sure, a, a, you know, a difficult, a difficult thing for all of us to process individually and as communities. Um, it's been pretty good. Um, I've been taking, uh, I've been relying on like to review the bills. Uh, NDHRC has a coordinator. Um, and then also like I've been relying on this week because last week for me is, <clears throat> was an onboarding week uh, at my actual bread and butter job. So that week I'm highly focused on new staff and that consumes pretty much all my time. And then by the evening, I'm kind of too exhausted <laughs> um, <clears throat> to delve into the other stuff. So I've been relying on like Prairie Action. They're doing a great job of highlighting bills and getting the information out there with links to other, you know, other things about the bill and information and data. Um, <clears throat> I think we're doing the same, NDHRC is doing the same. Um, so there are organizations that are, are doing that more. And I don't know if you have a following and you do something like that, Dustin, or not. Um, you know, do a brief of the bills and and what their intent is and, and kind of send it out to any group of followers or people who, I don't know if you call them followers or, yeah, I guess that's what you call it, following your blog, uh, if you're doing your blog and newsletter. And um, and then there's another uh, one I belong to. He used to, Arnis, he used to serve in government. Um, ah, I'm forgetting it all of a sudden. But he does have a blog that I get hit with an email whenever he puts one out. So. I think there's a lot more information going out to the public than I've ever seen before trying to engage citizens. So that's a bright light to me. Um, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, are, are the people that are looking, are they, you know, uh, are they really reading it and are they being critical in their thinking? And yeah. So, um, but outside of that, I think uh, it's been pretty, uh, pretty just home focused and I'm, I don't have children, small children anymore. So I, I am just like impressed with your ability to, you know, manage the things that you're managing and, you know, run households. And I, I, I think you both have maybe have strong partners in that, Ellie and, and Ryan. So great. Yeah, that's great to hear. That's a bright light, too. Yes, I agree. My husband is definitely good at taking care of a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, shout out to my wife as well. She's been great. Even though I'm looking at my house right now and it's a it's a pile of uh, Amazon boxes and half open Christmas presents and little game pieces all over the floor, uh, yeah. So it's it's been uh, it's been a crazy. I, I want to delve a little bit into the into the what happened at the Capitol on January sixth, uh, just because obviously I'm Presley. I'm you know no one could. Uh, really anticipate what it would be like until it happened and you know we'd heard murmurs um and uh you know inflamed rhetoric for many months leading up to the moment um and then when it came i guess uh, my question to the group is uh what what was running through your minds um and, and i'll kick it off too because i kind of i guess disassociated myself from it or uh try to repress any feelings um so basically when it was happening, I just didn't follow the news that day and, uh, you know, turn the channel on that one. Uh, you know, I, it helped that I was in the middle of homeschooling and have a bunch of projects around the house where I can occupy my time um, productively. 
so I had things to do, obviously. Um, but at the same time, it was uh, too much to follow. It, it seemed seemingly emotional overload of what was happening. And uh, so just chose to really kind of re retreat really from, from, the, uh, from the moment. And, uh, and there's nothing you can do, obviously, from North Dakota when it's happening in Washington. And, um, and I've been trying to stay away from social media. So there really was nothing for me to do that would be productive. So what I basically did is did nothing and pretended it wasn't happening so I could be productive in other areas of my life. Um, but what I've learned since it happened was that it was obviously a very scary, scary time for the people that were on the ground and going through the process of trying to certify the, the election results. And, um, and then all the people that got, uh, hoodwinked into participating in whatever they thought they were participating in. You know, um, we talked about um, quite often throughout the last year, how to have empathy for the other side, or at least to understand where they're coming from, understand their perspective. And uh, I guess I felt sorry for the people that were motivated to just storm the Capitol. Cause it feels like uh, these are self-styled patriots who um, take these institutions and the idea of the American dream and government and democracy and all that stuff they take it pretty seriously so they, they um seemingly got so confused or misled riled up to the point where they were attacking the very institutions that they hide hold in such high regard so it was such a, an awful reversal for the things that i think all those people likely grew up respecting and revering and now they've been evolved into this <laughs> this mob of people that wants to destroy it uh i feel really sorry for them because it seems like uh you know if they had a moment to reflect this is not what they would want to be doing uh so i tried to have some some bit of empathy for the people that were storming the capital and then there was also this element of just absurdity i think the guy with the the horns and the furs uh the, sh the shaman of Anon or, or QAnon or whatever he's called, uh, just f fellows like that, people, folks like that, who um, are uh, <laughs> uh, interesting individuals, we'll say, and um, semi-absurdists in absurd in in the way that they are politically engaging in the world. And uh, it's hard to tell how serious they are or where their beliefs end and some of the, the theater begins. Um, but, you know, it's odd. You know, we told <laughs> there's a song that the, the revolution will not be televised, but this revolution was televised. And, uh, and there were people uh, that stormed into the Capitol. And then their first instinct was to take a selfie on the dais or, you know, in Speaker Pelosi's office or something, which is... Uh, I don't know. I have to continue to unpack that psychological bundle of, of impulses because uh, it's kind of weird. Um, just a weird, a weird impulse to, to self-document uh, the moment in the moment of your revolutionary act. Um, so it's seemingly, it, it, there's a, a tinge where it's not. They're not necessarily serious, quote unquote, um, about what they're doing. There's a, a huge theatrical component to it, of uh, just wanting to capture the the moment on my phone and then and then eventually we'll leave so it's just um kind of a transitory fu really to the establishment for some of those folks and then obviously other folks came with zip ties and were ready to take people hostage and be crazy uh so that, you know it was just a weird mix of people and and motivations and um emotions 
uh, that I, I think we'll, we'll all continue to process. Um, I want to um, take some time to understand everyone's kind of emotional reaction to what happened that, that's on this call first. Later in the call, I'd like to figure out, um, start to talk about what it means to process this over the long term, you know, consequences, um, responsibility, the stuff that happens after you figure out what happened, you know, how do you go forward um, in a country that's, um, you know, uh, maybe 30%, 35% of the people that voted think the election was stolen. You know, how do you move forward with that large um, minority of people uh, questioning the very um, outcome of the election? How do you move forward trying to include them and not continue to further inflame them? And then what does the Republican Party do um, in, in that? What's their part to play in that? Um, you know, as they try to purge Trump, um, from from the platform from their from their company uh what does that look like for them and then what does it look like for the democrats um because i think you know we're trying to move outside the two-party system but the two parties right now do have a, a big part to play in uh how we you know the reactions um as a society that we're going to take after this um unprecedented kind of act of civil um civil war so with that i want to open it up to um Dustin and Ellie and, and Richard, what were you, can you take me through what, what you were emotionally feeling on that day? Because um, like I said, I, I basically just kind of repressed everything, but I know some people um, were much more in the moment and following along much more closely. Well, I was yeah. personally, I was embarrassed. Um, the world was watching us. So I, I felt, you know, embarrassment there. I, I didn't find it. I didn't find it, I guess. I wasn't that surprised that something like that could happen. And I wasn't really paying attention to the, you know, the lack of policing that had been there um, or was not or was. But, you know, it, it came to light quickly to start contrast. You know, they had to see that was going to be worked up, that that was going to be, I mean, the common sense. So just that, not having that foresight in itself is implicit racism. Um, I, I, it, you know, and, and exactly. if there was any explicit racism displayed behind the scenes, the investigations, I'm sure, will thwart that out very quickly. I have little mercy for some of these folks. Um, you know, I mean, they, they, they you know, and, and I don't really think that when I look at this, I was like those. And another thought that came to my mind is those folks are not Republican or Democrat. Those folks are holding up a man. This is why I don't like statues. Um, some are okay, I guess, but a people, um, you know, they're holding up a man as a king, right. uh, literally a king. That's what they're holding him up as, right? And and and, and I'll and, and I'll add to that, quite frankly, uh, an explicit, um, narcissistic white supremacist king. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think I have. I think after these yeah, not a good king. That, that right after watching him to make that judgment call. As another white person as well, um, and and the stark contrast between how you know peaceful protests that were going on by Black Lives Matter and how a lot of the violence and rioting there was these organizations, some of them undermining those, and the the police force that you know came out against those and how they prepared, you know, it just it, this was no less in many ways, uh, both implicit and explicit movement of white supremacy. Um, and and I, I don't want that to be, you know, go by. 
Uh, and and that I don't, again, Republicans and Democrats, um, I, I don't see that in these folks. I saw these folks as hateful, believing their freedoms are being taken away, um, you know, and their liberties, and they're not going to move over for anybody as black and brown people have, you know, are exercising their voice and saying, stop killing us. So I, 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 I did follow it more than I've ever followed anything because maybe I chose not to be so distracted. And also my husband kind of had it reeling. I, there was one day I actually had to say, let's turn this off because it was, it was kind of triggering us, you know, it was like, right. wow. Um, so yeah, it, it has been very emotional in some ways. Um, and he's an indigenous man. So, you know, he's looking at it very differently than I am probably too. I mean, uh, they, they went, you know, what if they would have gotten their hands on that, uh, on the secretary or the speaker? And what if they would have, Pelosi, and what if they would have gotten their hands on Mike Pence? You know, I mean, and now the fallout for all of these people is just driven. Those who voted against, you know, are getting death threats and stuff. And so it's not really over. Um, and I agree, no. I agree that, it, that the impeachment should have moved forward. I can understand why Mike Pence might not want to exercise the 25th Amendment, but I, I uh, we can dig into that. But that's kind of my initial initial fallout from that. Um, and, and maybe being able to talk about it a little bit more in those terms kind of will restore my energy a little bit. Because now we see, you know, the same kind of unreasonable individuals guising as Republicans in this state, or libertarian or whatever, wanting to reach in and control the wombs of women and imprison right. them, you know. For, yeah. and so that's a bill that maybe, you know, we talk about later, but I, I, I kind of took a little bit of a long time there. So thank you for letting me digest that or regurgitate it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can comment. Um, it happened to be my 37th birthday. Oh, so, gosh. Oh. Yes. Um, so my my attention was quite divided. Um, additionally, I don't want to go into any details right now, but I'll just say that we had a little drama on the home front as well. By that, I mean in North Dakota with um, a friend of mine being accused of being the vandal of Hoven's Fargo office. And uh, let's just say some shit was hitting the fan on that topic that day as well. Um, but I think I um, still managed to enjoy my birthday to an extent. I think sometimes also I like uh, weird stuff kind of fascinates me. So even when something's really scary and negative, if it's just like fascinating, there's some kind of I, you know, I enjoy somewhat the show. And so just a very strange birthday, I'll say. But I feel like, you know, if I'm personally, I feel like the universe has been trolling me a little bit the last few years. <laughs> and this happening on my birthday was sort of um, par for the course, I guess, because I when I was in graduate school and I was studying political psychology, one of the topics I was most interested in is authoritarianism and the psychology of authoritarianism. And Richard, when you say, you know, what are these people? Um, they're not really Republicans. I'll tell you what they are. They're called authoritarians. It's a very clear, distinct psychological profile that has been studied a lot on and off for decades. Um, you know, it becomes trendy and then becomes not trendy and then becomes trendy again. And uh, I was a part of a particular wave of scholars who were very interested in that topic um, when it was 
kind of coming back as, you know, something people were collectively interested in, but I was kind of early on that particular wave. And, and so there were still a lot of people who thought it wasn't really worth studying. Like there's, you know, I, I got this kind of resistance. I got really mixed feedback while I was in graduate school about whether or not this was a fruitful line of scholarly inquiry. Um, and, you know, there were lots of people in my life who were like, oh, yes, this is important and still relevant. And, um, you know, academia has its beasts and its camps and stuff like that. Um, I had to sometimes really uh, insist that what I was choosing to study was relevant and important um, and meaningful and real psychology. Um, I got accused of being a different type of social scientist now and again, which is like a weird way that scholars insult each other. Like, huh, you're really a sociologist or you're really a political scientist. You're not really a psychologist. I mean, it sounds dumb, but that is the kind of um, critique one can get. And so that was, I graduated in 2013. So if you kind of think about the timing there, you know, a lot of stuff that is part of our lives right now really wasn't quite, we, you know, we weren't where we're at now back in 2013. And so it's like ever since I completed the program and did my postdoc and started doing other research, um, it's been really interesting that it's just become more and more and more relevant um, in a very apparent way. And this one uh, scholar, Karen Stenner, who um, was hugely influential on me, she's also been long underappreciated for her insights. And she wrote a wonderful book called The Authoritarian Dynamic that really provides tons of insight um, into these, these individuals um, that we're talking about who, you know, participated in the events on the U.S. Capitol. Um, anyway, so I was interesting to see her kind of come out on social media over the last few years being like, wow, guys, I tried to tell you this stuff. <laughs> Here it is. Um, and so it, it's just like, oh, yes, of course. Yes, on my birthday, oh, that's what would happen. That's it. That is that is just that that I, I, the irony is not lost on me there. <laughs> that is incredible. Yeah. So. But at the same time, I knew that if I binged on the events, I would overwhelm myself and just be overstimulated and maybe, you know, anxious and depressed or something. So I did try to actually genuinely enjoy my birthday or just kind of had to have a sense of humor about it all. Um, that was important for me. Yeah, um, I will say, though, that there, as a result of taking a little bit of psychological distance from the event, I did miss out on some key details. And when I finally caught up on information, I have to say that I was pretty horrified with the details I had missed. It was a couple of days before I really realized there were literal gallows elected. I mean, erected, not elected, erected. Um, that to me, that is terrorism, and I find that actually pretty traumatizing to think about. I I have always found gallows really scary, like that. Just because to me, it symbolizes basically like the the death machine of authoritarianism, and I just it's just as terrorizing as it gets for me. And the fact that you know a different turn of events would have resulted with Mike Pence hanging. I don't like Mike Pence, but I, I definitely don't think that he should be hanged in public. That just is very disturbing and um, is, is not at all the kind of country I want to live in. And so, you know, it, a couple of days later, the terror set in and I, I really started to grapple with how bad it got. And now I'm just kind of, I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen next. 
uh, to be honest. Um, I, I, there's a point at which, you know, the authoritarianism knowledge you acquire helps you think a lot of things are predictable. And I did think of some of the things that happened on my birthday were predictable, but there is this sort of Pandora's box moment where now I'm like, not exactly sure what's coming. I, I appreciate you saying that it kind of made you depressed. I think that's what the, I've been going through this last kind of week as I've been focused on work at, and after following that as it was happening and, and just kind of like, you know, all the details and, you know, it, it, I, so I, I have been a little bit on the depressed side um, of not feeling, you know, energy to get stuff done and motivated to engage the system as much or, you know, engage the politic as much. I'm kind of finding find myself to want to step back. So thanks for kind of validating that. Um, I appreciate that. Overstimulated. It, it's funny. Uh, I, I'm I, on this one also kind of a weirdo, and I always have been. And uh, when it comes to current events, I'm not up to date on the minute by minute. That's what makes me anxious. Like if I don't know what's going on this second, <laughs> <laughs> it's a problem and that's that's how i end up uh you know basically live blogging everything that gets posted and 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 all that what was interesting was um and it, you know the, the the folks that that went in there you know from from what i have heard and i've mentioned this before there were two groups in dc there was the group that was at, at the mall and they were kind of like they were the calm, collected, professional, uh, conservative uh, activist class. Um, you know, from what I've heard, you know, Cato and and Heritage and AFP and all these groups, they literally had tables set up, and they were you know had clipboards signing people up to become members and get information and stuff. And then you had the other group that was over at the Capitol. You had the militant arm. Uh, I guess it's now our version of the Irish Republican Army, I guess. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the distinction between the two, you've got the, the folks that, that stormed the Capitol are the types that have been itching for a fight. These are the types that are a, a spinoff of the evangelical movement, which, you know, my biggest beef with evangelical people a lot of them is you know they they wish and hope for the end of the world well these folks are the ones that wish and hope for a civil war they've always existed they're just usually you know in the old days in a crowd of you know 100 people there were two of them and they were over there chatting and you know everybody just stayed away from them and i guess now we've just hit a a moment of critical mass with with QAnon and all this kind of stuff that that they now uh have been emboldened and, and uh, decided that they were going to launch what was actually, a, you know, everybody says, oh, it's just like 1776. No, a historian would say it's closer to the French Revolution than to our 1776, especially with the gallows and that sort of thing. I mean, it was a, it was a, a, a lynching type of situation more than a, you know, rebelling situation. And, um, there are there, there's a distinct amount of people that are a problem. Uh, if you've been following uh, Rob Port's Facebook page, uh, he, between he and I, we've been talking in the background of how we can 
get these people to self extract themselves from the movement. <laughs> uh, but if, if you look at that for, you know, 10 minutes of, of just the last two weeks of posts, um, I've spent an inordinate amount of my time defending him lately, which is not a comfortable place for me, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's the way it goes sometimes. And, uh, uh, it is just, it's just weird because it all, I, I believe that the biggest thing, the biggest factor in all of this is when a person got involved in the conservative movement. If you got involved before 2008, you're appalled by what's going on. If you got involved simply because of the, you know, Obama getting elected and then the Tea Party folks. And, you know, I organized, I was part of organizing 12 Tea Party events. I spoke at another, oh, I think I spoke at about 20 over that year and a half span. Um you know, trying to get people to care about local policy issues, which was kind of a futile effort, but I did it anyway. And, um, you know, then you get the people that got involved in 2015, specifically for Trump. And those are the people that are at least willing to care about policy. They, their only goal is to be oppositional to whatever the Dems want or whatever the Dems are doing. And they believe that if, you're an elected Republican that you're a part of the problem unless you were elected and, and kowtow to Trump. Uh, so you've got these three distinct groups of people that are based, based on when they joined the quote unquote conservative movement in the last 18 years. And they're very different characters. And, and this is going, to, and this is on top layered on top of, the traditional old school Republican crowd. So you really got four classes. And this is the, 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 the later that people got involved in the process, the less interested they are in facts and fixing the system. They just want to overthrow the system. It's a, it's a authoritarian anarchist Thing, which uh, you know, that's obviously an oxymoron, but it's kind. Of, that's the way that I describe it. They're authoritarian anarchists, and they they don't know what they want because they haven't been involved long enough to understand how things work. They just want to cause trouble wherever they can. They they and they see the the left people, you know, the BM the BLM folks. They have their protests that turn into riots, and they feel like those folks don't get punished at all for any of that. And they believe that they should be able to do the same thing and not get any repercussions for it. And it, it's just, and the age span, I, there, there are the people that storm the Capitol are either like really young in the 23 to 28 range. Or the these old fogies, like you know, fifty-five plus crowd, and it was it was really interesting. You didn't really see very many pictures of people that were forty-three or something. They were they were either <laughs> young punk hipsters with long beards, or they were old guys on social security. The old guys on social security were probably the guys that you know came to the tea party groups, and we just didn't talk to them because they were weirdos. 
Um, <laughs> so you, I, I've been looking at the, this, this differentiation and, and stratification of the folks involved and, and trying to figure out what the, the solution is. And, and other than simply ignoring them, uh, which is probably just going to make the issue worse because it usually does. Um, I don't know what the solution is because they're, they're not rational conservatives. So it's hard to deal with somebody who's just not irrational. Yeah. Well, I, I think that was an extremely cogent response to kind of the stratification of the conservative movement as it stands now, Dustin. So thank you for that. I want to get I want to get into it a little deeper, maybe a little bit later, uh, as far as you, you just said, you don't you don't know what to do with it with them. Uh, that's I think that's a very interesting question to to um, to pose. Um, I think you're probably the best position in this group to to come up with a, a solution. But I want to have a discussion around it because I think. It's a hugely important question for the next four years for the country as the as the conservatives move into the opposition party at the national level. Um, how do I function as a um, an opposition party in the, on the one hand, but also kind of um, either placate the, that that faction um, or purge them? And, you know, how, how do you approach um, this revolutionary faction or um, terrorist faction? Um, it was interesting. I want to just before before I go switch over to what, something that Richard said. I want to make. A, I, I, it was very interesting how there was like a, sec, a subsection of CrossFit dudes. I'll, I'll call them CrossFit dudes. They're the guys that are just like ripped, and they got the long beard with the beard oil, and uh, you know they've been working out. They've been waiting for this moment because they've been working out. You know the last five years or whatever, just waiting for this is what they when they're working out. This is what they're thinking about in their heads to to motivate them. And then there was the the retired folks who. Uh, I guess are in some sense more principled. Um, they've probably been thinking about this longer. Uh, don't go to CrossFit, but uh, they've just been waiting. And 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 like you said, this kind of fits into their worldview of um, you know either the end of the world or a civil war. And uh, regardless of what is the motivating force, they also were kind of motivated by the idea of this happening. And so now all these circumstances aligned and, and brought them to the Capitol and to storming the Capitol and. Uh, yeah, um, just a weird um, marriage of convenience between those two crowds um, for that moment. It was very just uh, visually um, visually arresting to see the way that the, the crowd was made up. And uh, no, no, but nobody. The yeah, it would be interesting if they if if at some point we could get a um, the the demographics on on the breakdown of the people that actually got into the Capitol. Um, well, not, in that regard to the demographics, I'll just say as you before you flip here. Um, you know, there were a, a good number, I, I guess, we're finding out more and more, a significant number of, you know, veterans uh, involved and and um, current law enforcement. Right. Current, you, current law enforcement, you know, people that serve in communities as police officers, um, you know, were there off duty. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, whatever might have been gone on in the inside with the snapping of pictures with, with ca uh, um, Capitol Police um I don't know what their involvement was, but that made it sure questionable. So I'll say that about the demographic. Yeah. Well, you anticipated where I was going with that, Richard. So the, the, I, oh, sorry, Dustin. I'll, I'll I have a up. theory on, on the uh, insider inside job stuff. I think that the security was told to treat it like a tea party, be friendly, 
don't don't do anything that is going to uh, be viewed as as anti-protester. And I think that they thought because you know every there's never been in in the last twelve years a conservative rally that got violent. And you know out of thousands and thousands of events, I mean it, it's. It, it is far more likely for a left-wing event to turn violent as far as damage, fires, vandalism, that sort of thing, even if there's nobody dying, than a right-wing event. Uh, and so there's no histor- there was no historical reason to believe that those folks would get so bad. And so they just went off of, you know, past performances indicative of future results type of uh, theory. And they didn't realize that they were dealing with the the anarchist faction of of those groups and that that had coalesced and and had distilled itself down so much and that the 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 people that you know talk about civil war and that sort of thing uh, online and usually are just you know blowhards uh that there there was a significant faction of those people that really believed it and and they just needed a spark and a, le- a few leaders and i think that, yeah. that is is where the the theory of the antifa in in infiltration then is um that why so many on the right believe the antifa infiltration theory is because they think that a that it would take an outside force to muster them up to actually act on the words that they've been using all these years. They don't believe yeah. that that it was a organic situation. And I mean, I'm willing to leave a very small sliver of that possibility, but even with that small sliver, they went along with it. You know, and so even if five guys came in and hijacked your movement, you still followed them. And, and, you know, if you didn't know who they were, why were you following them? Yeah. Well, I think there's an element of wishful thinking there too, Dustin, Um, because it depends how you define conservative um, rallies. Uh, If you can define them like white nationalists, uh, conservative rallies. No, yeah. You have Charlottesville, you have the proud boys, you have the boogaloo boys, you have all these boys doing bad stuff uh, with their guns and their camo. Um, so yeah, it depends on how you define it. Um, I would say that, that you know, obviously, anarchist anarchism is is a typically nonviolent. Um, it has been historically at least the last 30, 40 years, and uh, and about uh, direct democracy, and you know, it's process oriented. So it's not necessarily feeding into an authoritarian um, mindset, but there is, I would say, an overlap between. Um, I'd say it's more than that nihilism. Are, are um, like Elliot was talking about authoritarianism with the violent streak that that ticks people off um, or you know starts the the process towards this radicalization. Um, but I, I want to talk. So this idea of capital complicity or the capital police being somewhat complicit within the actions of the 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 rioters uh, on on January sixth. I think there was an element of what. You, you're talking about Dustin, which is we got to treat them. We don't want to make a scene. <laughs> we don't want to uh, mow down these folks on the Capitol lawn. Um, 
so there was this idea of the this is a PR um, situation, and we we have to act um, somewhat with a sense towards what people will think um, that agree with these folks but aren't here, and so we don't want to set them off. We're we're kind of afraid of them, you know. Our complicit whether it's fear or complicity, it's it's hard to say exactly. I'm sure some people were afraid. Some people are complicit, um, especially as we're seeing all these um, former vets and uh, active police members uh, being a part of the people that stormed. Uh, and then I want to go to, so we have this idea of complicity. Um, they, they just um, let them do what they want. Uh, you know, they'll go away. They're, they're harmless. Um, so that we have that side. And then we have the side where if this was a Black Lives Matter demonstration or these people were mostly black and brown people storming the Capitol, we, we absolutely know for a fact that the response would have been different. Mm-hmm. Um, same, could have been the same day. It could have been the same reason. It could have been, let's say Trump got elected and now there's a Black Lives Matter protest when he gets certified. Uh, we know that it's going to be a disproportionate response uh, to, to the, the amount of threat. Um, we know that there's going to be a lot more show of force. There's going to be the National Guard. There will be much more coordination between all the other um, law enforcement agencies. They will. It will be a, a, a PR. There will be a PR element, but the PR element at this point will be intimidation and, and showing that you can't mess with us. And if you try one little thing, you're, we're going to beat you up um, or shoot tear gas at you or into your face or you know we're, we're going to mess you up and uh, so there's this yeah. other pr aspect where we're going to it's, it's intimidation and threats against the the these black and brown protesters and uh so i think that is something as i was trying to repress what was happening um on that day that was the, the my my number one thought was like you know if this was uh, black lives matter or um, a race um, based um, protest uh, whether it was police brutality or a, a protest against Trump um, for his racist policies, uh, it, the, the 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 response would have been so much different, you know. And just imagining like people getting shot and you know mass fatalities, and uh, so I want to describe where I was, you know, as I'm thinking like, well, it's going to be obviously different if it's black people doing this. Um, my thought was, on the one hand, yes, that's true, um, and that's awful, and just another example of of the systemic racism. But on the other hand, um, shouldn't we be somewhat happy that there aren't that many people getting shot by the police? Uh, so it's not that you know these protesters should have been um, shot by the police or these rioters should have been um, disproportionately um, responded to with violence um, that uh, far exceeded the threat level. Uh, it's that uh, we have this response in our country where it only happens to a certain part of the country and then other parts it doesn't happen. But I'm, I guess I am. What I'm trying to say is, I'm thankful that a bunch of people didn't get shot by the police on that day. At the same time, I'm saying that this is another example of uh, systemic racism. So it's hard to parse, you know, as as a left-leaning person that I am. It's hard to parse the response because um, I guess I'm not saying we should have shot all these people when they showed up because that would be bad. Um, but at the same time, we know that it would have been different had Black Lives Matter shown up. So. How do we, you know, as we try to take from this um, event some lessons and to try to prevent it happening again, uh, how can we tie these two kind of competing feelings together, which is that uh, the police shoot too many people and we need to stop that. At the same time, we got to keep certain things safe and we need to um, treat everyone equally when it comes to threat, you know, perceived threat levels 
and um, and the, the right to protest, but the protest peacefully versus intimidation and violence. And exactly how do we how do we get there? Because I don't think the answer is to you know I don't think the answer was to have shot all these people as they approached um, or you know as they were storming the Capitol to just pick them off the no, you know, the off the walls. The president could have done something to stop it. He incited them, and he did. Well, not. Yeah, of course, that's the other element we're not that's talking about. He, <laughs> it was the he, president he itself. Could have. He he could have, um, but he did not. Um, and I agree with some of what you know folks are saying, and they kind of have you know different thoughts on some of the other down the road. I are um, on some of the other things, but I you know I thank you for acknowledging that you know the, the difference in the in the protest between black and brown people and white people, um, <clears throat> and the and the the expectation of what would be to come. Um, so I, I, and I, and I kind of like, actually, when I think about it too, I'm like, you know, for a lot of people, this is how, this is how reactive our government is. Right. Um, and how we, we we're not being proactive. Um, so especially when it comes to making room for black and Brown people in the, in the world, um, especially in this nation. So that, that that's it's a very interesting debate, and I'm not going to say anything more on that right now. But um, I, I would like to hear from Ellie. Hmm. Well, I have a lot of thoughts. Um, as a social scientist, I always think about restriction of range of observations, and and that. So where I'm going with that is that. Um, Usually the political right is in power. Sometimes the center's in power. Um, but we don't ever have people on the left, like genuinely people on the left, like for real, um, in power. And so if we've had a lot of experiences where the demonstrations of people on the left get the craziest, well, I'm pretty sure that just the way um, political competition and just the opposition, I guess I should say, works is you're going to see more demonstrations and crazier demonstrations or ones that get out of hand from the people who aren't in power. So uh, people are making the mistake of attributing something to leftism when it has to do with being disenfranchised. Um, and so, uh, yeah, different disenfranchised people wild out sometimes. That definitely happens. Um, and they wouldn't be doing it if they weren't so disenfranchised. So um, it's not so much ideological, like who flies off the handle and gets destructive. It's, uh, you know, a feature of the context. And so, yeah, if they they thought that um, right-wingers of various stripes who feel uh, disenfranchised weren't going to wild out and get violent, that was very naive. Um, and, and yeah, it's just not how any of this works. Um, and you know, there is a lot of research showing that people associate uh, darker skin and and then, um, well, not, not just skin color, but also race as a category. So obviously we know people's tones can vary, but darker skin color or the category of being black or sometimes depending on the environment, you know, another person of color, it just it just activates a fear response in people. And so it is just a cultural like you basically you can't grow up in a culture where black people are so stigmatized and described as criminals and animals and stuff like that and not internalize those associations i mean it's just how brains work 
Uh, there's no getting around this. So we all have these associations of black people with criminality and danger and aggression. And like we all carry this with us all the time, whether we like it or not, um, whether we want to admit it or not. And so naturally, um, when demonstrations involve people of color, there's just more assumptions of hostility in that regard as well. Um, people are just expecting black folks to be very violent. And we know that a lot of times when these left-leaning demonstrators have some kind of event, a lot of the people who actually end up doing some of the violent stuff, you know, a lot of times they are white people. So sometimes the black movement will get in trouble for the bad behaviors of ostensible white allies. So it's, you know, it's pretty complicated in that regard. And, um, you know, I don't know. We, we often just like don't really know or understand the complexities of the relationships between a more mainstream demonstrator and an extreme violent demonstrator on both sides. I think there are people who pass under the radar as one type, but they're really the other. And I just I think some of the stuff is just not that well understood. There, you know, I know a lot of people who lean left to participate in demonstrations peacefully. And um, we, I wouldn't know who to expect to take it. I mean, some people I do know, maybe I would expect, but a lot of people, you know, I don't, I don't even know who it would be, who would be the um, ostensibly more aggressive Antifa types who would come in afterwards. You know, that's sometimes kind of, be kind of a mysterious category for people. But yeah, I think that um, stereotypes that black people are more dangerous than other humans is very relevant here and absolutely plays a role in the deployment of law enforcement, which is something that has been studied extensively. And as, as you know, these are things that are well understood, like everything that I say is comes from a lot of research on the topic. So, um, yeah, well anyways, understood. clearly it was. Well, a <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry, it's well understood, but I don't think it's it's um, well accepted. <laughs> I think there. Um, yeah. By, by I mean, yeah, that's power. fair. I mean, well, I mean, in general, people don't really want to. A lot of Americans don't want to accept the insights that come from careful, like careers, careers of careful study on the topic. I mean, people just, especially if you're a social scientist, you know, everyone thinks they're a social scientist because they're a human too, and they do things. And yes, we all we all collect data all day with our lives. But we all are basically, we, we have a bunch of anecdote, anecdotes in our mind and we have, right. we're very biased processors. So we, we encounter things in a biased way. And so to really systematically study something really requires you to get out of your comfort zone. And that's what experts have to do um, and, and think really critically and stuff like that. And people don't want to know what we have to say. So that's nothing new, unfortunately. But yeah, I, uh, it's, I mean, whatever the hell was going on, it's just foolishness that um, that everything was so unsafe at the Capitol. I mean, it's just, and, and just, it seems like such foolishness given how many, there's always so much, there's so much effort being made to make things safe to the point where a lot of things are over police, you know, and, and, it, and it just, it, yeah. And so it's so weird in a, in a country that resorts to over policing so often uh, that we would completely drop the ball in this situation is it is laughable and Thank pathetic. You. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, that that bath, that's the part that baffles me the most. Yeah, well, I, and I think they, you know, if it was just a regular day at the Capitol, 
people would have been, you know, talked to if they had stepped on the lawn in the wrong part of the uh, of the Capitol steps. And uh, and on this day, you know, they, they, there was the the order did go out to like placate this crowd. And um, I think it all goes, you know, this discussion revolves around the perceived level of threat. And so Ellie talked eloquently about what that means from a psychological standpoint. You know, our culture and our society has created these ideas, stereotypes, and, um, you know, received wisdom from the past that a certain group is more dangerous than another group. And, um, and even if we're aware of it, we can't necessarily fight it in the moment. Um, or, you know, it's so subconscious or unconscious that it infiltrates um, our rational decision-making process in ways we don't understand in the moment. And uh, so you can be a police um, captain or whoever the, the Capitol Police um, hire, high, 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 um, highest leader who ended up resigning a couple of days after everything uh, due to his, due to his um, failed response. Um, you can be trained and go to all kinds of, you know, interventions and you can understand it intellectually. Um, yet when the moment comes and you're faced with a decision, you still make the wrong decision. So again, this perceived level of threat, um, you walk into a black neighborhood and you're scared um, or you walk into a white neighborhood and it's a demonstration with a bunch of guys walking around with their AK-47s and, and Uzis and stuff. And you're like, and you're not afraid because these are white people with guns and what, they're not going to shoot you. Um, so it, it, it's it's so ingrained in the American experience that other than, you know, facing it and talking about it every day, there's no real way to address it. And so it really takes political will from everybody to understand and accept it as a problem. And then after the acceptance understand that it's a kind of problem that you can't just fix in one day or fix with um, a certain law or fix with reparations or fix with this or that. It's something you actually have to fix every day over and over <laughs> until, you're until you die. And then you got to teach your children and teach your grandchildren to do the same thing. And we have to work on it like every single day, maybe for 100, 200 years to undo it to the extent that it will actually will not be a part of our um, rational conscious decision-making. And, the, and to, 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 to face that scale of problem and understand how deeply embedded it is within America is a, a scary thing for how we move forward because it's not just, you, you know, we just don't elect a black president and it goes away, which I think a lot of people thought, well, finally, 2008, we've solved racism and um, we all wanted, wanted it to be solved. And now we've solved it. And then we completely forget about it. And uh, that's the mistake we made and we continue to make. It's not something we've learned the lesson on. And so, and I don't think we're gonna learn the lesson and from let this. Me share, let me share a quick research finding. And the people who thought that electing Obama solved racism were center left people. Nobody else thought that. There's, just, there's right. just some, some research on that where they specifically yeah. identified who had that belief and it was uh, the center left being foolish. And I and I I'll go so far. I I I came to understand soon into the Obama administration as well that you know um, this actually you know and then as Trump was coming in and listening to Trump, you know I mean I think you know I know that it's probably indicative of of presidents when they change party um, and we have a new president to undo things of the other president, um, you know, um, but you know he kind of was obsessed you know, about, you know, Obama and overturning things and, you know, his first discreditations and stuff. And, and you know, I, I just, you know, truly got the sense that, that um, I, 
you know, even in that, that his white supremacy was showing to me, I guess, because it just, it, and just the, the, how mean the man was and icky. Um, and that I, I find it hard to believe, even from the authoritarian perspective, that somebody wants to follow someone like that. That's the other part that's baffling. But those are both. Oh, I mean, thank you. He's. He is the, I mean, he is what they want. He really is. Yeah, he I is. know that sounds weird because he's not what you and I want, but, no, but he, is, um, he is what they want. Exactly. He, he checks the boxes. He, he scratches that itch. That's why I say he could have stopped this and he did nothing. He emboldened them even more, you know, in hopes of whatever else continue. But we love you. I want to know who the hell we is. Right. Well, I mean, that's the, that's a thing we haven't discussed is that it was the, the actual president the the leader of our country um, encouraging directing inciting violence against his government our government the government uh, when he's still the elected leader of that government and so it's this real crosswire kind of situation where it's confusing who you know, especially if you're someone that leans authoritarianism, you know, who, who do you trust the man or the system or the, 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 the system of authority or government democracy. And uh, they got their wires crossed and um, he does check all the boxes. I'd say he's the embodiment of, of Americanism as I define it, which would be capitalism and greed. <laughs> and uh, so he's, he, he's the avatar of that, of what we've kind of built up. Uh, in the last 40 years with the rise That's of true of, but i think you know, i think for years. for authoritarians it's not as ideologically specific in that way um it's more um his he you know he's he's uh signals like a, a kind of masculinity that they want to see in their leader like there's just a lot of right it's, the it's masculinity stuff that's just aspect not, yeah, sure. it's not your standard dimensions of ideology here. It's um, and then and then and like the fact that he he stands in contrast to diversity. You know, he's make America great again is about returning to a kind of consensus too. Not just you know, it's about right. uh, rolling back time to less diversity, but also less diversity of opinion. And diversity of opinion is um, activates. Uh, authoritarians it, it's the, the things that threaten or there's like two main threats that make them start behaving differently from other people and that is thinking that they have an incompetent or bad leadership so like obama um and um uh, what is it i'm trying to remember what they call it but um well we call it normative threat but that doesn't say much um it's basically when people aren't viewing the world the same way anymore that's right. very threatening to them. And those are the things that really nudge. And so the thing is like Trump being the solution to people, not to diversity of opinion by saying, no, 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 we all got to get on board with this vision. It's that's what I mean when it's really scratching that itch. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was, I was throwing in the component of, of selfishness or greed. Um, I think what I've noticed over my 43 years on planet Earth, um, especially in North Dakota, as is viewing it as a person that grew up in North Dakota and then left and then came back. And what I perceived to be North Dakota values as a kid versus now as they've changed. Um, the idea that greed is good, uh, I think when I was growing up, I think we 
it was understood that greed wasn't good. It was bad. But those were the 80s when I grew up. And uh, that was when that was overturned, kind of changed. We, we, we turned greed into something that benefits society or at least American society. And that's, the, that's what Trump stands for. And it's very a self, self-centered, selfish, um, um, narcissist kind of existence. So you take that plus masculinity, plus um, the authoritarian urge, and you wrap it all together. And it seems like that's kind of what America is about. Um, if, you, if you put everything together, this um, rampant individualism that we kind of myth- mythologize, and then you stick uh, economics on top of that. And the Trump exemplifies all of that put together in one package. And, um, and, and his, his business experience for what it is, is, is very much based on exploiting those urges within the people that he makes deals with. And, and he embodies this. And so you make the deal based on his force of personality with him. Not necessarily that he knows anything about real estate um, or that he's a very smart business person. He's not necessarily very good at business, but he's good at the, the art of, of the appearance of, of business um, savvy. And that's kind of what we bought into, um, you know, taking every, everything through this lens of business and, and economy. You know, the, the, the interesting thing, you know, you, you know, maybe they're not related, but I just, um, it's interesting when I was looking at the no, news that day, and, I, and I've, I've been making this observation more and more, listening to, the, to NPR every day, um, and just noticing how often they report on the state of the stock market during the week. Um, you know, you listen to their hourly um, news updates. Uh, they'll they'll comment on the on the stock market probably two to three times on average during that five minute um, news break, whether it's up or down or it's re- markets are reacting to this or that. You know, everything's even NPR, supposedly liberal outlet, is always um, refracting the day's news through how did it impact the stock market. So on the day that uh, there was an attempted coup in America, the American stock market went up. So whatever, <laughs> whatever. Whatever social ills we had on that day, the the business community, as um, reflected through the stock market, didn't care. Business as usual on on that day, um, which you know I don't know how how much stock you want to put into that uh, necessarily, but <laughs> there's actually an explanation to that too. What is the ex- explanation? Well, you know, so much of the stock market is now automated that human decisions are a very small portion of impact on the stock market now and so the the algorithms and the robots uh don't understand what's going on in the world and there's not enough people making pushing buttons anymore <laughs> there still is the human element of either fear um you know buoyancy of the market you think you, you think things are turning up you have good jobs numbers for yeah. that month or that quarter and then stuff churns or you know uh, elon musk says something stupid on twitter and then take some stock somewhere you know there is a cause and effect and the people in power know um typically know how how public utterances will will drive the stock market on the short term and there's a lot of kind of insider back 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 room dealing on the stock stock market um, fluctuations like that uh, but i just thought it was interesting because you would think um you know the world the world's power um you know the dollar is the world's currency and now we're at the seat of the government of that um currency in washington dc and uh and, and there's an attempt to coup we don't know what's going to happen 
you know, lots of uncertainty and market hates uncertainty. But on that day, you know, whether it was the algorithms or people were just, you know, doing their thing, uh, stock market went up. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that's <laughs> that's why Republicans and Democrats are, are the same uh, is because as long as the stock market goes up, you know, we can deal with everything else um, going wrong. And so I think this is a good moment to kind of transition um, into and, and I'm going to rely on you, Dustin, to kind of uh, set the stage or set the terms of the debate um, for this next section, because I think it's an interesting question um, from a Republican viewpoint. You know, I, I put myself in Kevin Kramer's shoes, uh, John Hoven, John Hoven's shoes, Kelly Armstrong's shoes, and I'm looking over my last two to four years um, in public life. And, you know, on the one hand, I'm like, uh, well, we got our tax cuts stock market went up. I got reelected. Uh, we got a lot of judges. We got the Supreme Court in our back pocket now. Uh, so I'm pretty happy. You know, a lot of my objectives were achieved. And um, the only thing I'm worried about is people hold me responsible for Trump at this point. So what I see happening um, for folks like that who were never really diehard Trumpists, maybe, maybe Kevin Kramer was a diehard Trumpist um, to an extent. Maybe Kelly Armstrong was a little bit. I don't know. Um, I don't think John Hoven was. Um, he's very much, um, I guess, a traditional Republican at this point. But I think if I'm them, I'm very happy with what happened. I'm sorry that uh, things got a little violent, only to the extent that it's going to impact my reputation going forward. And um, if I'm smart, I will probably vote to impeach, um, not because I want to get the ire of Trump, but because um, I want to um, legally, <laughs> forcefully remove Trump from the ticket in 2024. And so what the impeachment could do potentially is it could um, make it so Trump can't run in 2024, which if I'm, a, if I'm John Hoven, I'm like, that's awesome. I get all these policy objectives achieved. Uh, I remove the stench of Trump from the Republican Party and from myself personally. And, uh, and also I cleared away for someone who's not Trump to run in 2024. So it's almost the best of all world, all possible worlds for the Republicans. Uh, and, you know, as someone who's not a Republican, I'm, I'm slightly worried about this happening um, because, you know, um, the, the idea of like, let's purge Trump and Trumpism from Republicans. Let's um, let's blame the extremists for what happens because it was an extreme faction that kind of did this. Um, you know, th those are the techniques of scapegoating and um with a scapegoat, some usually what happens is that you blame someone for something so other people can get away with what they had, you know, what their part to play was in it. So, as we scapegoat the extremists and um, and Trump himself and blame them and try to purge them, where where do we draw the line for um, and create consequences for the people that enabled Trump along the way? You know, I think uh, Kevin Kramer, for example, was an enabler of Trump. Um, he uh, Rode on his coattails and you know, tried to ingratiate himself within the administration. Um, I think Governor Burgum also, to an extent, was looking forward to a second term of Trump uh, so he could have a, a national um, position, per perhaps. And so, as they, you know, they did a little, let's not, let's not say that they were insurrectionists, but they enabled Trump and, and then bad things happened. Should not there be some sort of responsibility or consequences? <laughs> Uh, for that, um, I, I'm not saying they should all, you know, get out of politics, but there should be some. There should be some consequence. Should should there not? Um, if you want to purge Trump, you you have to 
uh, repent to an extent, um, admit failure, <laughs> admit that, uh, hey, uh, that part where I, I was uh, promoting this guy so I could get my tax cuts and my justices, you know, um, I take a little responsibility for things that happened that, I, that were beyond um, what my objectives were. Um, I would like to see that from the Republican Party. I would feel much more um, uh, comfortable with uh, unifying, you know, trying to seek bipartisanship um, going forward if I saw that kind of self-awareness and um, public repentance. And, um, you know, that's what I'm, you know, from a left-leaning perspective, that's what I would like to see. Dustin, I know you're working um, in, in fighting those battles, kind of intra-party battles now on how you move forward uh, without Trump or to purge Trump from the party. I know in the beginning, it's just going to be a, a matter of kind of excising, you know, whether forcibly or otherwise, them from the Republican brand or rebuilding a different um, version of Republicanism or conservatism. But what do you see, I guess, in the short, medium, and long term as the challenges and uh, um, doing that as, as a semi-insider on that side? And then what do you, how do you see the likelihood of public repentance or at least ad, an admittance of failure of leadership from the Republicans who did enable Trump? Um, you're never going to see that. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that was that was my first thought too. Thanks, Dustin. I, um, I was like, "Am I crazy, or is that <laughs> Republicans never admit failure?" I, I don't. Uh, yes, continue. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I mean, what I'm seeing right now is, you know, the wild people. Uh, they're, they're calling uh, Hoven, Armstrong, and Kramer rhinos, and I responded. If Kramer's a rhino, then there's no such thing as a true Republican anymore. <laughs> uh, because, you know, he, he, Kramer is kind of a hybrid between a true believer and a panderer. Um, and that is, has been his whole existence. Um, Hoven has been a panderer his whole life, but not. But, but usually it was pandering to the moderates and the the moderate liberals, moderate Democrats to get him in there so that he he didn't need the the far right ever. Um, Armstrong is is more in the traditional right aisle that I would say. Um, the this this whole and this kind of goes back to what I was saying about it. The these factions are based on when they were brought into the Big Tent, and and a lot of this it goes back to the whole concept of the Republican Party being a Big Tent, and the fact that it's not it it has never been a party. It is it's always been a coalition of four, of three to five different parties at different times. Um, I mean you've got the Southern. The, the Southern Democrat faction of the Republican Party, you've got the the Libertarian faction, you've got the the corporate Chamber of Commerce faction, and then you got the straight up evangelical faction. Um, and then in each of those, you've got w when did they come online and in the process? And uh, and so what what it's going to it's going to require 
those of us who were in the conservative movement pre-Trump and pre-Tea Party to be willing to or a, willing and able to go to the establishment, whatever that is at this point, um, and saying, listen, you either get to deal with us or you get to deal with those guys that want to invade your capital. You get to decide who you deal with. Um, and, and if the establishment is smart and deals with what I'll, you know, I'll call myself first wave conservative movement, just so there's a label on it. Um, if they accept that they need to deal with us to avoid dealing with the other guys, then things can change. Um, if they try to go back to the old ways of strictly being, you know, evangelical chamber of commerce party, then they're going to have major problems because that's a straight shot to, um, you know, and, 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 and if they try to just block out the Trump faction, that's a straight shot to becoming a regional party uh, where you can be dominant in certain states and you might send some senators to, Con to, to D.C., but you're never going to be a national force again. That's kind of where it is. Now, the, the positive side of that is that if that's the result on the Republican side, it will inspire, theoretically, the progressive people to do the same thing within the Democratic Party, split that coalition up, and we get to a more parliamentary European system where you've got like 12 parties and at any given time, five of them matter. And, you know, then you actually have to govern through a system rather than uh, alternating dominance. Right. Um, but in the short term, I mean, th this is not a, a quick fix. I mean, the timeline I would expect for Republicans to realize that they need to change is um is based on them losing in 24 and having a significant chunk of the trump faction lose interest i mean a lot of this is going to depend on the people who were not paying attention before just losing interest in, in suffering an adhd burnout situation um and then you've got the, the of course the problem with that is that you've got the potential for the whole cycle to you know start over and and repeat but um yeah i mean it, it there, there's, there's no hardcore solution to this um the the establishment people are not in a position to fix the problem because with people like me, you know, we don't like, we didn't want what the establishment was doing 15 years ago. We don't want to do what the Trump people want to do. So we're stuck in the middle here. And um, the, I don't know how many people in my faction, if they are forced to choose between the old establishment and the Trump people, I don't know where that split is. It might be 50-50. And they, neither side is going to like where they have to go. It's going to be, you know, the plug your nose and check the box situation. 
so yeah, I, it's a long way around to saying who knows. Uh, and, and because I don't think anybody has any, there's no authority for, for as authoritarian as things have become, there are no authorities anymore. If that makes sense. <laughs> totally makes sense. Well, I, I hope there is a lurch towards a more parliamentary, um, non duopoly, um, national and local politics. So it gives people options at the ballot box. You know, I think, you know, if there is a, a, a bright side to divisiveness, it would be that, uh, you know, a proliferation of parties would be a nice bright side um, to divisiveness. So people actually do feel they're not hemmed in and maybe we have a, a more um, robust democratic uh, and civic engagement process in, in the process. Um, I'm afraid that I'm afraid of that not happening uh, just due to the way that the two parties seem to have a death grip on the political scene at this point. Um, but I think that you did kind of outline what would be a, you know, a positive development uh, throughout this kind of period of disruption. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, a lot of that is obviously wishful thinking too. So <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. We, that's what we would like to see. Well, I think this is a, um, unless uh, Ellie or Richard have a, anything else to add, I think we should kind of pivot now to more local, local focus for the rest of our, um, our call. Um, I did want to, um, Ellie or Richard, any, any thoughts? I, I was going to say, sure. I, I'm good. I, go ahead, Ellie. Oh, I'm saying sure. That sounds good to me. All right, cool. Um, well, I, I wanted to mention MLK days tomorrow. Um, so, you know, one of our um, civic cooperators, uh, Bill Patriot, is, is pretty invested in celebrating Martin Luther King uh, Jr. every January um, in Bismarck, in particular, but throughout North Dakota uh, on a local level. And uh, I just wanted to. Are, before, I, before you move from that, um, sure. are you aware of the North Dakota Human Rights Coalition's and the Human Rights Campaign event tomorrow evening uh, for it's statewide for the um, MLK Remembrance? I, I'm, Bill sent me the link. So yes, I am. But okay, um, good, Richard, good. could you give us a spiel on that real quick? Cause I don't have the information. Well, in front yeah, of it was very, okay. So it was very quick. You know, I'm so thankful for our, our interns. Those young women are just incredible. Of course, Barry has been committed for years to the advancement, but uh, when it came clear that nothing was going to happen and kind of was down to the last wire, um, basically a, a bunch of organizations kind of jumped in and uh, came together on it and, um, you know, found the money, um, uh, you know, each of those organizations kind of kicking in, you know, because at the Fargo level, something had already been planned. Um, you know, generally there was a budget for that already with the Human Rights Commission or something to that effect. And, and um, I don't know if there will be awards given this year. Usually a, um, an organization who has looked to be very inclusive uh, in their operations and governance and, you know, all of that kind of thing. Uh, is recognized like one year it was Prairie St. John. Um, I can't remember who it was before then. And then and there's going to be a lot of artists, um, um, people of color artists. Uh, and uh, that was one of the reasons to get the money is, you know, artists should get paid, right? Um, so that, that's part of the budget. As a matter of fact, I was just looking at an email there. So, and, and it's going to be on Zoom. So yeah, if you've got the link, I'm hoping people will attend. It'll be interesting to see if more people attend than even when it's like, the, when it's in the Fargo area. And then I would like to see the numbers, you know, because usually headcounts are kept at those. I'd like to see the number for the statewide thing as opposed to all those who went in local communities. Like, I know they usually have something in Bismarck. There's usually something in Grand Forks. 
and that kind of thing. That'd be interesting to see in the end. But yeah, look for that. Boy, I, I almost I would have been horrible if I didn't make sure that folks knew about that in every network that I'm in. I apologize for almost missing that. Thank you. Yeah, well, um, you know, if I hadn't been homeschooling, I I would have probably not thought to bring it up either, because where I was going with that was that on Friday, since we'll be off on Monday for Martin Luther King Day, um, on Friday, I talked to uh, talked to my six year old first grader about Martin Luther King. And uh, I got to say, I I almost broke down in tears, uh, maybe five or six times throughout the, the, the 20 minutes that we talked about it. Uh, and I don't know it was be- whether it was because the, the events of January 6th um, are just that so we were still struggling with um, with race in America. But it, damn if it wasn't sad to talk about um, Martin Luther King uh, and what he had done and uh, basically <laughs> revolving around the idea of nonviolent uh, resistance and uh, and her questions around it, which was, you know, we talked about Martin Luther King Jr., how he grew up, um, how he um, fought injustice through uh, through his words and through nonviolent protests. And then she would ask, well, what happened to him? And then the response was he was shot. And, uh, and then we watched a video about Martin Luther King Jr.'s life and they brought up Gandhi and she was like, who's this guy? And, uh, and I was like, well, he's Gandhi. He was from India. He kind of um, started the nonviolent stuff, um, or at least was an inspiration for Martin Luther King. And then she asked what happened to him. And then I was like, he got shot too. And, uh, and then they talked about JFK. And then she asked what happened to him and, and, and he got shot too. And, uh, and I was at the end of the lesson, I was like, well, what, are, what are we teaching our children exactly? You know, we're, we're trying to remember what, he, what Martin Luther King did but um, through the eyes of my daughter, it seems like what what we're almost teaching her is that if you speak up, you, you might get shot. And she actually asked that question. She said, if 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 we talk, if we speak up in public, are they going to shoot us too? And uh, you know, that's that's the kind of stuff that makes you want to cry, because that's, that's um, deep. Yeah. So uh, it, it's um, yeah. I mean, so the anyway. answer is maybe yes. I mean, that, that's yes. what I told her. Like, yeah, that's speak what up, I told her. People get shot. Yeah. An element so, yeah. of in that, right? I mean, and when you look at that, when you look at those three individuals, they were all three individuals that were trying to advance, um, you know, the stop criminalization of, you know, and, and the hate of brown and black people. Um, they were all trying to advance, you know, inst- institutions to be more inclusive. Um, you know, they were all trying to do this in a peaceful way or through governance, you know, and that kind of thing, you know, so... Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's the first thing after you said that, that kind of came into my mind, comparison those three people. I hope that's accurate. Um, but yeah, that's pretty deep. Thanks for sharing that, Ryan. Yeah, well, it's pretty sad. It, it made me, maybe, uh, you know, I tried to pull it together for the lesson, but um, yeah, it hit, hadn't hit me in that regard until I tried to explain it to a child. And then it was like, this is incredibly sad. And uh, if you actually grapple with it, you can't help but cry about it because it's... Um, you know, we try to teach the the inspirational aspect of the Martin Luther King um, Jr. story, but it's incredibly tragic, um, a, a part of a tragic um, history of America that the people that try to change stuff get shot for it. And um, as we remember him, I think we need to remember that that's how we treat the people that actually are, are making change is we tend to kill them for doing so. And... Uh, so as we try to make change ourselves, recognize that's part of it. And also, 
um, try to teach part of the lesson in a way that, you know, I don't know if it's okay to get shot for doing what's right, but you know, that's kind of what the lesson is, is that if you do what's right, you might die for it. And, um, you know, as we have the people that wanted to die for their, you know, die for what they believed when they stormed the Capitol, um, we're still in that cycle of violence and, and trying to do the right thing and, and, and the backlash of violence that comes along with that. Now, um, transitioning to our local um our local pol politics scene i want to talk about the legislative session i'm, I'm going to lean on i know dustin's fall just a little bit more closer than the rest of us um and i'm assuming you've been doing some testimony down uh, in person dustin um, uh or, not yet but this week is going to be back to back wall to wall <laughs> i mean i've got yeah. i've got uh one two three four five six seven eight uh like 16 bills uh i'm not going to testify on all of them i think i'm going to testify on about five of them but uh yeah it, it's kind of crazy no i want i want to before i get um into kind of a round robin or a round table here of um, bills we're watching things we like things we don't like kind of um prompts um we talked when we when we last talked with Marvin, we we were like, um, you know, this is great. Everything's going to be online. People will be able to testify via Zoom or Microsoft Teams, I guess. Um, have you noticed whether it's whether the participation levels have increased due to technology? Um, you know, I think this week will be the the most um, the one of the busiest weeks so far. Um, but has technology? enabled people to participate remotely as we thought it would, or has it um, been a way to keep people out of the process? What is your impression so far, Dustin? So far on the bills that I've poked in on just to watch, uh, I see no real difference. Um, the people that would be sitting in the chairs in the room are the people online watching. Um, now the ones that the, the hearings have been on kind of the boring stuff so far. Right. in the weeds uh technical type bills and um and so i that probably isn't a very good gauge of it um when the what will be is when the um the controversial type of stuff starts popping up um now i mean next week uh what i'm looking at is you know uh uh uh, excluding social security benefits from state taxation, which is a pretty good uh, bipartisan issue. Um, so you might see some, uh, a good number of people in there, or you might not. If, you know, a lot of the stuff, when people think that it's going to go one way or the other, no matter what happens, and that's when people usually don't show up. If they think that, you know, the fix is in either one way or another. Um, and so, I don't know. I, I mean, we'll, we'll see. This this week will be a good test to see because we'll have a few of the more uh, more uh, envelope pushing stuff, but not the real crazy, stupid stuff. That'll probably be next week. Um, <laughs> nice. You know, that'll start because it. They always wait till they always yeah. waste their it, whenever you know. Like the house last week was on the clock, which means that they can only put in five bills in that week. And then the, their deadline is Monday evening at four o'clock. And uh, uh, for whatever reason, legislators really like to waste their last five on the, 
the goofy bills and the, <laughs> the outrageous bills and the what were you thinking? You know, why did you put your name on this bill? Um, it's like that their their judgment. They get all the good stuff in, you know, in October, and then they wait till the last day to put in the, the crazy <laughs> town stuff. So, but you know, that's just the way it goes, and some of that oh. is intentional. You know, some of the, yeah. When, when, when you see a crazy bill, like stupid, silly, dumb, why are they wasting our time on it? That is pandering to a certain crowd, and it is a shell game to take your attention off of something else that yep, is yep. going through in the appropriations committee or something. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get into that, Dustin. I, before we do, however, I wanted to mention one more thing, which was, well, what I've noticed when I've watched um, testimony so far is that there's this thing where someone in person will introduce someone that's going to join the committee via um, teams, Microsoft teams. Yeah. And, do you know if that is a, what exactly is that? <laughs> uh, is that a part of the parliamentary procedure for, for remote um, testimony or is that a, a, something, a custom that they're kind of developing now or what's, what is that? Well, well, the, uh, the protocol for, for the distance testimony is that you have to get your written testimony in an hour before the meeting okay. in order to be allowed on camera. Okay. Um, you know, traditionally, and I don't know if they've they've added that to to the in person. I don't think they have. I don't know how they would. But um, traditionally, you know, a, a, a typical busy day for me, uh, I would have two or three bills that I know I'm going to testify on. I type up a one page summary and maybe have a page of charts, you know, and give that to them. But then I'm also sitting in on a half dozen other bills that i'm not sure uh what their intention is how right. serious they're going to be taken or if i'm even going to speak on them and there is typically what happens is when you're in room it's it the you you're allowed to just jump up and say well i wasn't going to speak on this but because x y and z was brought up i'm going to now in room, you have that option. They wanted to make sure that that option is off the table for for the online, right. as a means of, I believe, mostly time management. But they also don't want to hear from people who don't have their thoughts in order. Yep. And and so that is the limiting factor on the online stuff. So if you do not get your your written testimony in by the deadline, you're not going to talk. And, and so that's part of why my, uh, I, I sense that there's not a lot of new participation in what I've seen so far is because when citizens come in to speak and they've never done it before, very rarely do they have written testimony. Um, it's the ones that have been there over and over and now know that that is a, a expectation. Um, you know, the typical thing is the farmer who's still in his R overall bibs or whatever. Uh, you know, it looks like he was just milking a cow. He comes in and smells <laughs> like it too and starts spouting off about, you know, the federal government is trying to regulate feedlots or something. And, you know, the legislators 
we'll let that slide as far as not having written testimony because obviously, you know, it's not expected from the guy who's you know literally working the cattle. But for the professional lobbyists, it is. And so, you know, um, in the usually when I speak without having something written, they're like, "Can you get us something in writing so <laughs> we have it?" Especially if I cited any any numbers or they ask me questions and you know, want me to get stuff because that's, that's a lot, a lot. The difference between a, a citizen testifying and a lobbyist testifying is that the lobbyists doing their job, the, the legislator is going to ask the lobbyists for data, you know, because right. they don't have staff. So we, in a lot of cases are acting as their staff as well as, um, uh, influencing them. That's both a good thing and a bad thing. So, uh, if you've got, if your lobbyist is, is being even handed, he'll give you all the numbers. If he's not, he's just going to give you the numbers and make his case look good. Uh, so yeah. Uh, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was great. Dustin. That's exactly what I was looking for. So basically for the people that might be listening, if you want to give some testimony, uh, via the computer, you need to submit some written testimony, before the hearing itself. And uh, what you're saying is that if you want them to even listen, to even have the option of understanding and listening to you, when you speak, you really should have some written testimony to, to provide them before the, 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 yes. the hearing. Cause they're, yeah. they're, they're, you know, they're overwhelmed with what they're doing right now. Yeah. And, and so um, it is up to the clerk, the committee clerk to organize who sent in written testimony and who checked the box. Cause that, on the, on the, um, committee hearings page on each line for each bill, there is a submit testimony button inside of that, where you upload a PDF, there's also check marks. Do you want to speak? You know, nice. are you going to be over the camera, stuff like that. And so they do have to organize that situation. And then that's going to be, uh, and then they cross that with the people who are in, in person as well. Um, and from what I've noticed, the people that are in the, the in-person folks are the same ones they always are, which are the, the highly paid lobbyists and the government employees that are either there to, um, represent their agency or there to, uh, uh, do something, uh, provide, provide neutral testimony that actually, um, supports or doesn't support the bill <laughs> as a very, uh, prolific user of the neutral stance in testifying there's no such thing as neutral testimony i know exactly <laughs> but that's i what do they it do. all the time and it, strategically <laughs> and, and some some chairmen hate it when i do it but they also know why i do it and that is to get the last word right <laughs> because it's the pro the con and then the neutral so my strategy is i'm neutral on this but if you change this this and this i'd be for it and then that's yeah. how I get my last word in. <laughs> and that's all that's been my strategy since my first session. Well, that's brilliant, Dustin. You, you gave three great tips for people that are listening to help them uh, organize their thoughts and, uh, and have a little strategy and to get on camera. So that's great. Thank you for that. Um, in our last 20 minutes, I want to have a round robin with the four of us. Um, I think it's still just four of us. I don't know. If anyone joined us yet, it's four of us. Um, I want to go through, um, I guess, first of all, let's, Let's each speak a little bit. I'm, I'm sure we've all been following a little bit of what's going on. 
speak a little bit about um, a bill that you saw come out uh, that you're excited about and would like to see passed um, for whatever reason, uh, whether you think it's a great idea, long overdue, something you hadn't thought of, but you like. Um, I, I, let's start with the positive news first. And uh, so I, I will get the ball rolling here. And if I can get, I'm, I'm, I'm scrolling. So um, Richard, I don't know if you, um, if you got the link from Dustin, but he put together um, a, uh, a uh, Google doc of all the kind of the bills we're watching, which has become quite a, a large uh, document at this point. And uh, there's quite a few things that I would like to be involved in. I don't know if, if where the time's going to come from, but um, I do see a lot of interesting things happening. A lot of things where, um, like Dustin said, I'm wondering why this came out the way it did. And, our, our, and then another class of, of builds where I just don't understand the motivation or the intent right now. It seems unclear. And I would like to be involved in the, in the testimony or at least um, watch it so I can understand what the intent is. Cause sometimes the intent seems a little unclear. But the one that I'm going to start with, if I could find it, which I, it doesn't look like I'm going to find, I should have prepared a little bit more. There is a bill, which I don't have the number of um, at this point. There is a bill to let physical therapists order MRIs. And so this, this would be an example. I hope it passes. Um, I think it's brilliant. This is an example of incremental change that legislators can do that can have a huge, a very small change can have a huge consequence. And so let me just kind of explain my thought process on this and then I'll, I'm gonna flip it over to, um, to the rest of you to kind of go through the one you like. So um, we're in the middle of a crisis of opioid addiction in America. And um, what happens when, let's say you have some back pain, you go to the doctor, the doctor prescribes you a pain medicine uh, because it's such a um, back pain is such a debilitating pain. And, uh, and some doctors will prescribe physical therapy, or at least they'll give you a referral to a physical therapist. They'll give you the, the prescription for some pain medicine, and then they'll give you a referral to a public, uh, to a physical therapist. And typically what happens, or at least happens in Western medicine is that you'll take, you'll fill the prescription, start on the drugs, and then you'll either not call the physical therapist or you'll go once and you'll get a couple exercises and then not do them. Uh, and so this is not good. <laughs> this is what leads to addiction uh, because the drugs are powerful and uh, they definitely help the pain, but they create a dependency and the actual cause of the pain is never addressed. So physical therapy, on the other hand, um, as opposed to drugs can actually treat the cause. You can, um, with lots of back pain, it's a matter of doing your exercises, changing something about the way you live or work um, to remove the thing that's causing the dysfunction in the physical body. And then doing the exercises to, to address the imbalance, the muscular imbalance um, or the, the spinal um, compression or whatever it is that's causing the back pain. And so physical therapy, you know, we talk about how do you change um, opioid addiction? Well, you know, don't prescribe as many opioids would be number one. But then number two, we have a huge chronic pain problem in America. So how do you address chronic pain is through physical therapy, in my opinion. And so giving physical therapists the, um, the power to uh, get MRIs um, imaging done is a very small fix. But what it does is it allows um, 
it creates circumstances where people can create a relationship with their physical therapist and they go to the physical therapist, they work with them, they do interventions, manipulations of the body. Um, you know, there's dry needling, there's, um, exercises you can do. There's all kinds of, um, physical therapy tricks. It's quite an amazing, um, sub, um, section of, of medicine. But if you have this relationship where they can order imaging too, then they can continue to build a relationship with, with their patient to help them overcome their pain through proactive kind of self-directed um, interventions. And so kind of subvert the idea of take a pill and uh, just deal with your pain for the rest of your life. And so it empowers uh, patients and empowers physical therapists. And it's also going to lower prescription uh, or it's going to lower um, healthcare costs because the thing with physical therapy is it's very um, cost-effective with great benefits. So I love this bill because it's so simple. It's such a small change, but it could have such a huge impact uh, in the way that we treat uh, chronic pain, which is, you know, the heart of the opioid um, crisis is that there's a lot of people that have back injuries in in the world, in America. And um, this is a way to address it through physical therapy. So I love this bill. Whoever, if I had it in front of me, I would give credit to, to introduce it. Sadly, I was not prepared, but I do love that bill. And I will find, um, hopefully, while the rest of you are talking, I'll find the actual bill so we can cite it. But with that, who else has a bill that they would like to praise for its brilliance? Um, Ellie here. I w I'll say that I'm very open to the um, paid family leave legislation. I think that it has a uh, good versatility for a variety of situations. Um, but I, I'm sorry, I to, to violate the prompt you've just said, I, what I really want to talk about actually is the fact that there's a bill that is just right up my research alley and I'm probably against it. Um, but I just, <laughs> next anyway, prompt, so I know that it violates. <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. I, yeah, I just, um, the the one the the bill eleven nineteen from the house to force that ballot measures be put on ballots in their entirety and not have a summarizing process from the secretary of state um, is very interesting because I think that I really could model and make a pretty decent prediction about you know what it would do to vote um, based on the all the research I've done. Um, over the last, well, now it's over a decade. Um, and, you know, I did a lot of research before I moved to North Dakota, started doing so when I got here on ballot measures and the psychology of um, grappling with their complexity or their length and how it influences votes and abstention. So I am kind of also, I'm kind of bummed that I'm experiencing burnout and exhaustion because if I wasn't, I can tell you what I would have been doing all this weekend and probably do tomorrow is I would be like, cramming in a whole bunch of analyses and writing a report for the government affairs or whatever committee, which meets at Thursday at 830 when they're in the, for the house, they're going to be discussing this bill. And so now I'm trying to figure out, do I have the energy to prepare anything for them? Um, and I guess I hadn't, you know, I thought, well, technically I, I was thinking I wanted to submit something neutral just to say, this is what re my research suggests would happen and not necessarily um, advocate for anything, but just really show them what they're voting for or against. I was thinking even just being like a do pass recommendation, you know, basically says that you're comfortable with the, um, the impact it'll have on yes or no votes and on abstention. A do not pass recommendation kind of suggests that you're, you're not comfortable with the effects. Um, and I would, you know, just kind of walk them through that 
so I really wanted to do that, but I just don't know if I have the energy for it. And if I, or, or I'm worried that if I spend my energy on that this weekend, I'll have no energy this week to actually be effective in my job, which is a big no-no in the policies and procedures <laughs> for my job. So I'm struggling a little. It's, it's, you know, leaving academia is something that I felt very good about, but there was definitely loss there for me. Um, and there's a part of me that's always looking for an excuse to like, go back into my little, you know, personal private academia cave and like do the work that I was trained to do like most. And the work I do in my job, there's a lot of parallels to my academic work, especially in terms of statistical methodology. So I enjoy it quite a bit, Um, but I still get really tempted. And so when there's legislation that is directly related to something I started cooking up when I was a grad student in, you know, this was in 2010 that I first got into this stuff. I, I can't help myself almost, but, um, but I don't, it may not happen just because I'm really tired and these are just really busy times. So we'll see, but I just wanted to talk about that because it was just like, Oh, wow. That's where, you know, and I know that there's other, there's other ballot measure, um, bills as well. Uh, this one was just bizarrely related to my research program. Well, thanks for that, Ellie. Um, I want to mention that it's HB 1173 that you're talking about for the full text of constitutional amendments on on the ballot. And I thought uh, it was 1119. I'm looking at HB 73 in our in our. Okay. Well, hey, there's there's multiple ballot bills. There's two bills. Mm -hmm. There's two bills. I think. Okay. And and I may have labeled one wrong too. I mean, yeah, I see. Potential. Um, The the uh, I'm I'm opening up. Because Koppelman, this Koppelman bill, which is interesting because usually the Speaker of the House isn't a prime sponsor. Uh, so it's kind of weird. Full text of constitutional measure. Yeah, 1173 is one of them. And then, uh, let's see, 1119 is the Clemine bill, which is also in the same realm. Um, this is... Um, you know what? 1119, I, I mischaracterized 1119 and that is, uh, the order of constitutional measures. Uh, so 1173 is actually what Ellie is talking about. Gotcha. Well, the order is interesting too, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the tradition is first come first serve. Um, and, and I believe that this is, this is codifying that, um, which is the, the the measures the measures passed by the legislature. They are supposed to be placed on the ballot based on when they are sent to the secretary of state after the governor's signature. Uh, or no, there is no governor's signature. Never mind. Um, they're based on when when they are signed by this uh, by the president of the senate um, for for. Uh, HCRs, concurrent resolutions. Um, then they go to the Secretary of State, and then he puts them into the the system. Um, I think that one of the reasons that exists actually is remember the on the Secretary of State's website they were not numbering the bill the the measures that the legislature had passed until like July or some silliness, and I think part of that is because. part of this bill's existence is because Al Jagger was being lazy and not numbering the measures early enough. And people wanted to get their, uh, their uh, campaign materials printed up. (laughs) 
That makes so much sense. That really adds up actually. Yeah. So I, so from a, from a technical standpoint, 1119 is, is an okay bill. It's 1173 that is the, is a, is a poison pill bill. And I don't think that's going anywhere. My favorite bill um, is a very little bill and it's an appropriations bill. Um, it's being brought forth. Um, I don't remember his name and I can't, I don't even have the number in front of me. So it, the task force, the North Dakota um, task force on the prevention of child sexual abuse has been working for the last couple of years, you know, and they, they set up some subcommittees and they've done a really good job. I had other opportunity to be reviewing minutes and, and I actually did a, a, a like, I wanted to understand where the minutes I could get them and that kind of stuff over these last two years. And I couldn't, I couldn't find them anywhere online. And I reached out to um, uh, Tom at the uh, Solberg, is it at the department of health? And he promptly provided everything to me um, um, right away within days. And so from a records perspective, you know, that was public records perspective. That was the first one I ever really did. I did it very informally, not really knowing that I was doing it. And they were very responsive. And then to the extent that they're going to be making some changes to how they interact with the public, because I pointed out, where is the public getting the information on what you all are doing, you know? And so anyways, the appropriation bill would appropriate a very small budget. And they have the budget put together for a director to actually start carrying out the objectives um, uh, of the task force. Um, so they put together that budget and, and they're clever enough to have it being introduced by a Republican or, you know, Republican um, uh, senator. And it's going to be introduced in the Senate, hopefully, I believe. So, um, uh, yeah, that, that's a bill I'm hopeful about because uh, we're way behind on that, that, that kind of collaborative, strong efforts in the state when it comes to identifying and intervening in child sexual violence and, and along with that bullying and other pieces, um, you know, and I'm not talking just bullying. I know they've kind of addressed that, but sexual bullying, all right? So anyways, that's, that, that one brings me joy. And there's a number that, of them that don't bring me joy um, that we won't go into right now um, because we only have a few minutes left and I will need to sign off. But thank you for having me. And thank you for focusing on the positive, uh, Ryan. <laughs> that, was, that was a clever, that was nice. That's a good way to end today. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> well, we don't have time for the negative. We could probably have another two hours on. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. I, I, or yeah, the rest of the evening, which we don't have energy for that. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, uh, Richard. If you have to take off right now, it's been great having you. Um, I do want to, uh, contravening your prompt there, Richard, I do want to have a little time for the things that we're uh, not so excited about. Maybe as our checkout, we can talk about some of the bills we saw or tracking that we don't uh, necessarily agree with, or we think are terrible, terrible ideas. <laughs> part, of, part of the nauseousness of, of reading 200 bills in one day is that the majority of them are ones either you um, don't understand, so you have to think about a little extra hard, yeah. or you don't like, and then you have, you're forced to just read it and weep, really, and then move on to the next one. Um, yeah, where do, you, where do you start with that? There are so <laughs> many, the residency requirements, the the the, the 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 prohibition of of um, you know the anti women bills the trans yeah there's a there's there's quite a few kind of like what I would just call fucked up bills out there yeah well um, Dustin have we did we have a chance to go through the one that you like the most before we transition here to the end of our call yeah um, and and 
I think I found it, actually it was in the Senate bills, the physical yeah. therapist MRI thing. I yeah, SP added that. Uh, the um, the you know for me it's kind of difficult because I I even the ones that I'm listing as strong support you know are, are nibbling around the edge type stuff. Um, there, I don't have a lot of proactive bills this session or any other than our uh, initiated measure uh, electronic signatures. Uh, which here's a quick update on that. Uh, Vetter sent me another uh, text message on Friday regarding his version with the 60% versus two thirds majority for constitutional. He says that the senators won't go with 60% that they want two thirds and that he's, he is inclined to not introduce it if, if that is the rule. And I, I said, I, I, I would agree with that. You know? Yeah, thank you. Um, I, you know, yep. I, I, I had told him that if he could get it down to 60, I could live with it, but 67% is just no good. Um, yeah. Uh, so good bills. Um, I mean, there, there's several here that the government competition bill 1169 is, is something that I wrote in nine in 2015, the first time. Um, and, and that's one that is, uh, designed, it would create a commission that would look at complaints regarding the way various government entities compete with private business and how that costs the state tax revenue. And this is obviously, uh, this originally stemmed from my long-term fight over the Western area water supply, which is a Republican socialist program to subsidize the oil industry by selling frack water at discounted rates that undercut private business selling frack water. Um, and so we, we uh, over the last 10 years as a state have spent upwards of $500 million creating Western area water supply, which the front premise of it was to, to provide water for small towns and farmers who have had to use bad well water all these years. But this was just a front because it was really designed to provide uh, low priced frack water for the oil industry. And originally it was just intended to be a depot program where you, you know they, they would send their trucks to go fill up. Well, over the years, it has become a situation where the state actually builds water lines out to oil fields and then sells wow. them water at up to 50% discount compared to what the private sellers can do. So we lose, so, so we, we lose the money that is spent on building out the infrastructure to supply the oil industry. And then we also lose the tax revenue that we would otherwise be getting if it was private industry selling to the oil industry. And I have, a lot of my big donors are, are private water guys only because uh, Dwayne Sand got into that business after he lost his last uh, attempt to get elected in 2012. And, and so he became like the, the patron saint of that industry all of a sudden because he got into it. And uh, uh, so this is one of those big things where the Dems uh, – went along with it because the theory was that by selling this water to oil companies, it would subsidize 
the domestic supply for the farmers and the small towns, which in retrospect, we should have just spent the state money outright to provide the water for them and not have this convoluted funding program where we, we've lost so much. I mean, the, the, the debt for this program is $200 million that had to get shift over to the bank of North Dakota to sit on it. And all these dumb things happen. Um, so Anyway, the, the, the competition bill, that's a good one as far as I'm concerned. And then, you know, there's, there's things like, uh, uh, one, uh, let's see, where was it? Uh, 65. Uh, there's a bill, uh, uh, 1325 property tax freeze for, for people over 65 completely, which would extend the current homestead credit program, which is kind of what I suggested back in 2012 when I was neutral on abolishing property taxes is, well, at least let's do something so that the fixed income people don't get kicked out of their houses because their property yeah. taxes are constantly going up. You know, and so little things like that are, are really going to be my focus on the positive side. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for highlighting the the, the property tax freeze. So, uh, I I like uh, I like taxes. I like to collect taxes. Um, <laughs> I'm in favor of tax policy. But in this particular instance, this is a great relief for a, a subset of folks that are, like you said, on a fixed income, and can be really screwed by a surprise property tax assessment. And mm-hmm. um, I've seen these these. Um, stories in the paper where it's this old couple and uh, you know they're on a, a fixed income social security based income and uh, you know they're in their 60s late 60s 70s 80s and uh, the city comes along and gives them like a $60,000 property tax or a you know, special property tax assessment or some other kind of tax bill that they paid off their house they weren't expecting this to happen and then this pops up and it's you know it makes them have to move contemplate moving or you know other things which we, how can we do that to people you know that we're supposed to be supporting in their in their golden years in their twilight years um, with this surprise taxation uh, based on nothing that they, no behavioral change that they, that they made um, it's really quite unfair. So I, again, this is, uh, like you said, an incremental small fix that has has huge impacts for a certain subset of people that we should be trying to protect, really. And so, yeah, I think that is another great bill. Yeah, and, and tied with, you know, what I've done over the last uh, three, three and a half years at the city level on the special assessment task force, where we're trying to get the city or the state to give us permission at the city level to abolish special assessments and replace them with monthly fees, which it's the same concept that it's easier for fixed income people to budget for $25 a month fee than all of a sudden uh, worrying about how they're going to finance a $6,000 or $10,000 special assessment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Those small changes make make a huge difference. And, 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 you know, it's just those people in those circumstances got caught in a situation where, um, I think the people that um, created the taxes didn't ever anticipate happening. So, you know, we're, we're creating a fix for people that got uh, screwed by a law that they hadn't uh, foresaw that this eventuality would happen to this, this subset of people. So I think it, hopefully that one gets strong support from everyone and passes easily because I think that's a huge, a huge win for, for the state and for people in those situations. Um, okay, so we're at 404. Let's have some closeout thoughts here. Um, I, my closeout thoughts will be the one that the bills that uh, or at least the one bill where I'm scratching my head. All right, I just think it's overly mean to, and I don't have, unfortunately, this is not in our tracking list yet. Um, it's in my list of things I'm going to put in the tracking list, but haven't got there yet. But it's a, it's an anti-trans gender bill for people um, basically 
if you're transitioning to a, to a different uh, sex than your biological or different gender than your biological sex, um, you can't compete in public um, uh, in public uh, stadiums or um, infrastructure. So, like schools, um, you can't compete uh, in school activities uh, uh, in those places. So, basically, if you're uh, born male and you transition to female you will be unable to participate in sports in school uh, if this law pa passes, which uh, number one, totally discriminatory. Number two, it, not a problem. <laughs> there, there is not a raft of, of people doing this, um, you know, upsetting competitive balance or whatever they th think they're addressing. This is just not a problem. It's not happening in large numbers. And when it does happen, it doesn't upset any competitive balance whatsoever. Um, you know, there, there might be the one in a million case of someone that goes to the Olympics after they transition uh, and have an un, unfair advantage because of extra testosterone or something. But, you know, it's not going to happen in North Dakota. You know, the chances are tiny, small, very small. And, you know, it's a front for just um, a, a totally discriminatory on its face bill. And so screw this bill. And uh, <laughs> I hope it goes down in flames and I will try to uh, make my voice heard on this because I think it's just um, outrageous. Uh, so with that, uh, any other checkout thoughts or bills that you guys are just like uh, ready to defeat? Well, Brian, I'm glad you brought that one up. It's uh, pissed me off too. And um, <laughs> I, yeah, I have a lot of feelings about it. Um, first of all, I'm definitely pissed off at Tulsi Gabbard for normalizing this thinking. I mean, what the hell? Um, and her feminist crusade is super fake because it is not, there's just no evidence of there being this meaningful pushing out of other women and girls because trans women are taking over our sports. Like it's just Crazy. not happening. Yeah. And like, we, you know, ask the women, like, you know, ask, <laughs> look at actual, look at the situation, like look at teams, look at, you know, it's just, it's not this phenomenon that, yeah, it's a problem um, or it's a solution in, in search of a problem. Right. Um, and just so like rude and just offensive and I mean, just disgustingly invasive and um, dehumanizing and just very, very frustrating. And I just think that anyways, yes, I'm definitely very irritated about by it. And I, I hate as a woman that like, <laughs> my biological propensity towards smallness is like weaponized to say like, Hey, I'm standing up for you. Like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to keep these trans women from ruining, you know, your competitiveness. It's just like, Oh my God. Um, this is a, a small group of people and there, it, it opens a lot of interesting philosophical questions about biological advantage. And um, it's, you know, human diversity is really rich and interesting and cool. And, we get our best athletes from some genetically unusual individuals. And, um, it, you know, it, to, to only apply that to trans women, uh, you know, and not others, it's just, right. it's just transparent yep. what's going on there. Yeah. Um, I did want to say that the stuff that Dustin brought up, um, that those types of tax relief, that's very interesting. And that actually kind of makes me want to, uh, if not right, maybe write about, but definitely think about property taxes again, um, you know, like what we have we learned over the last year, you know, I think maybe it was February, maybe that I wrote about property taxes last time. I think that the pandemic ha taught us some things. And I think um, it would be cool to pay attention to what's going on in the legislature. And especially if those bills are experiencing any success, 
Um, it could be interesting to write about them at the time that, you know, if, depending on how timing lines up and stuff. So I definitely think about my column in terms of what is actually going on at that time, even though it's a four week uh, rotation. So it is insensitive to, you know, in some ways, I, like, I just can't predict what's going to happen. But um, so, yeah, very, very interesting stuff. And I, I think that, um, you know, a critique of property taxes, as you all know, uh, is that in that many cases it's regressive. And so I think a lot of people across the political spectrum are open to property taxes being more progressive or, you know, just just not being weighed, um, not so heavily weighed on people who don't have much income coming in. And um, so I think it's always fun to talk about something that can bring people together in their self-governance and and show that uh, it's kind of a kitchen table issue in my mind. Yeah, in agreement on all that, uh, I think I'm interested in, in fixes to the property tax uh, that would be less regressive or more, um, I guess, equal, equally applied, not based on use and not based on um, assessments, but maybe based on acreage, something that could be universally applied, um, whether the, the land's being used or it's developed, um, and regardless of whether it's developed or not, or, you know, um, so you're a land tax of what's guy. on it, but just having a... a a land tax, exactly. I think yeah. that's a fairer tax system, and obviously you can predict uh, what your taxes are going to be when you know how si- how big your property is. It's very easy to understand, and there, there are no there, surprises. There is a, and I've I've discussed both sides of this. There's a few people uh, on both sides of the aisle that that advocate that Charles Marone, which is uh, the guy that runs Strong Towns, he's from Brainerd, Minnesota, is one of the big advocates of it. Uh, and then there, a lot of the Austrian economics people are in favor of it. Um, the, the one big downside is that it does shift burden down. It is, it, it, it is more fair, uh, as far as how it is calculated, but it has a tendency to shift the burden down in income brackets because people with less income own less land, but you still have to pay for the services that they get. So it, it, in a lot of ways, it, it converts the ad valorem tax, which is the regular property tax, into the way the special assessment system works currently, which is based on usually linear feet of street frontage or square footage of lot. And so if you don't like the way that our current special assessment system works, you're probably not going to like the way the land tax works. Well, I, I would push back a little bit and say that it's going gonna, it's gonna to hit um... – more businesses, uh, you know, more commercial entities um, in a fairer sense. So it'll it'll bring up, you know, um, the people that buy up land it's as a, a speculative investment, but don't plan to develop mm-hmm. it for 30 years. And, uh, you know, it's classified as agricultural land that's not being used or it's in the CRP system or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, it, it helped capture that um, those rents, <laughs> the people that are trying to, to speculate on land values. Um, and then, you know, assessments are difficult because, you know, I think that we all should, we should be sharing those burdens um, equally. So um, 
even though I live in a part of Bismarck that's been developed for 30 years now and uh, is not going to have too many specials other than as you know wear and tear occurs, I think I should have some um, responsibility for the things that are happening in North Bismarck um, to get those streets built and those people in houses and, and in neighborhoods that work um, and function properly, uh, because we all we all use um, we all benefit from a system of of traffic and, and transportation that um, benefits the entire state and the entire country, and so we should share in the development costs of those. So I think people get you know what happens with. Um, the, per the person that moved out, out of North Dakota uh, or moved out of Bismarck, let's say, um, to South Bismarck 30 years ago, and they moved to a place where it was all farmland and they're, and they're you know, they've, they built their dream house and they paid off over the last 30 years. And now uh, they're starting to get neighbors and people are encroaching on it and developers are coming and now they're going to build um you're going to build some streets and some sewers and, and street lights and stuff in what was formerly farmland. And this person that's in their dream house now uh, has to pay these special tax assessments for stuff that, uh, you know, they thought they had already taken care of and they're happy with. And now uh, a neighborhood moves in and screws them over in that respect. Um, is it that person's responsibility or is it the community's responsibility to uh, to make um, to make th uh, a system that functions for everybody. So I think if you if you were able to remove special assessments and just have general assessments for infrastructure assessed to the entire community, um, not just landowners or property owners, but everybody in, in whatever way you decide that that makes sense, whether that's increased gas tax or increased sales tax or whatever. Bismarck does it through the sales tax. That's the bulk of our uh, thoroughfare main main road uh you know washington ninth seventh that kind of stuff. right that, so that i would just expand too. that because i think what that does is it um it's it's fairer and uh it also will i think act to discourage um, um excessive development um in the in the sense that um you know i i city planning i guess is a whole other conversation but it is a little uh bit of a bummer as someone that's lived in Bismarck since 1980, I guess, um, on and off to see the way we're expanding northward and, and southward and eastward um, away from the city centers of, of Bismarck and um, all that infrastructure that has to be built and um, how um, I would say how dead those um, neighborhoods are in those um, new developments, no trees, no parks, uh, a bunch of cookie cutter um, houses that may or may not be energy efficient or nice to live in, but they're new and um, and there's buyers for them. So they get built. Uh, it would be nice if we had a more sustainable method of, of infrastructure development and upkeep. And I think if we had this kind of shared cost burden, we people would be more engaged in that process, um, whether it's the zoning board or city commission or wherever um, they can make their voices heard. I think if they are footing the bill for these um, um, developments and to an extent, people would be much more um, tuned into uh, maybe a, a different grand design of Bismarck or different um, city planning um, of Bismarck. As of it stands now, if it doesn't touch your pocketbook, I don't think you care. You might uh, lament it, generally speaking, but you're not going to show up and, and make your voice heard. So I think that... Uh, it, it, Oh, go ahead, Dustin. A big reason that those developments end up the way that they are, there's two, there's two facets to that. Number one is that when they're built prior to being annexed and are subject to the extraterritorial zone rules, um, I mean, people don't understand, the city of Bismarck controls your zoning two miles outside of the city of Bismarck. 
because right. it's anticipating bringing you in. So you are you are regulated by the city, but you don't get to vote in city elections. That's what uh, House Bill 1165 is about. And and it, it we call extraterritorial zoning uh, regulation without representation. Yeah. Uh, because it, it is really an unfair system and, and regulation being an, you know, a tax of its own uh, is, is a problem here. The second piece of it is related to the special assessment system and the way that the city acts as a bank yep. for uh, developers as far as the city sells bonds for your development and then you use those bonds to, to pay you for your infrastructure. Uh, that's, we're starting to phase out of that program. Uh, Chad Walker has, is the lead developer on, on that. As far as he has taken it on himself to just pay hundred percent of in-ground costs out of pocket, roll it into the lot price yep. so that the buyer can pay that off on the, on the 30 year note rather than on the seven year special assessment schedule. Um, so you actually save money that way. Yep. Um, and, uh, so the, the way that the city has incentivized development is actually the culprit in a lot of that stuff. People think, oh, well, it's these, these greedy developers. They just want to get the most out of land. No, if it were up to the, the, the developers, those lots would be half the size. They would, you know, they'd sell twice as many houses and the streets would be you know, as narrow as down, you know, downtown Bismarck Street. All that stuff is regulated by the city based on what kind of financing you get from the city, how much the city is able to uh, set the rules for your development. And so a, a lot of what you're talking about is 40 years of bad public policy that has been blamed on private development. I, I agree. It's, um, you know, I, I would say what the what happens in the I, I would blame the developers too you know to going along with it or not standing up for themselves, but what happens is that they build cheap houses to, mm -hmm. to make up uh, for the difference, and so we have a bunch of uh, new houses that kind of suck if you look if you look at how they operate their operational costs uh, efficiency um, upkeep maintenance going over over time, um, you have a lot of you know the the your service lines to the house, um, all things are just kind of breaking down under the surface. And, you know, that shows up in, in insurance claims and other kind of um, deferred maintenance stuff that happens to homeowners. That's, um, you know, I, as, as someone that knows a little bit about the insurance and, and building houses and stuff, um, yeah, I'm kind of flabbergasted when I see, when I walk into a new house and I see all these things, uh, you know, corners that have been cut uh, in a house that's between 250 and $300,000 to, to move into. Um, mm -hmm. You're like, how did, how did this happen? What, what was, what, what's, what's the, why did the builder do this? You know, the builder knows better, but um, what, what are the forces acting on them? And so it's these other things like you're talking about that, that they have to make these other decisions based on things that are happening at the city level. Uh, in the way that the, the developments in the in the neighborhood was um, brought into an existence. So yeah, one particular uh, example of that is uh, drainage and and watershed laws and and the yep. fact that developers are not allowed to compact their soil as much as they used to it, because the law says that your soil has to be able to absorb water better in order to mitigate flooding, right? Mm -hmm. What's the result of that? We have foundations that in brand new houses that were built 10 years ago that are cracked in seven different spots.
because the law didn't allow them to properly compact their soil. Right. And, and so that should we've be got, we've got laws that are supposed to be pro-environment that are actually creating a situation where, you know, having houses falling apart is not good for the environment because they're going to be less efficient. Right. So right, exactly. You know, it, it, it's people in policy making positions that don't have any clue about the actual process of building houses and developing land. Right. Well, that we lack a shared language, really, because everything has become, you know, a specialized industry of it. So of itself. So, yeah, with this idea that you can't compact your own dirt, <laughs> that you supposedly own this dirt, but you can't compact it in the way that would make your house last longer. That's pretty messed up. Um, you know, whether it's because they don't understand um, the watershed, the way that it works, or they're 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 working off some other criteria that, that dictate uh, less compaction. Uh, it, it's, it, I don't think they have the right, I would argue, you know, from a property, you know, I don't like private, private property in a lot of respects, but it's my dirt in my house and I should be able to, you know, have my developer, the person that built my house, you know, make it in a way that will make it last long because uh, I, it's mine, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I own it, don't I? Uh, so yeah, it's, it's the water policy as a function of private property um, or the way that the, those two ideas interact um, is a lot of squishy squishy ground and i and i use that pun intentionally um we're way over our time um yeah. dustin did you get a chance to uh kind of have your little checkout thought here uh i think so <laughs> well i want to uh thank you guys for putting in the extra time today um it's been very in informational um i hope we can get this one up uh sooner i'll, I'll try to get the turnaround for you tonight dustin so we can get okay. it out um i think the stuff in there about providing written te testimony and the way that people can participate online is very important so i want to you know, if we have listeners i want to get that out to them as soon as possible so people can participate and um good luck to both of you this week um doing everything we want to do um and uh if there's a way to support either of y'all in the stuff that you talk about um let me know i'll try to help Otherwise, you guys have a great week. We'll talk soon.